Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 378. Um, I'm going to go back to architecture tonight, um, talking about the uh, starting in England, Tudor and the Jacobine, 1485 to 1625 circa. The Tudor and Jacobine periods can be seen as a turning point in British domestic architecture. Fashionable buildings gradually moved away from the styles and taste of medieval buildings toward the more sophisticated structures with classicized decoration. After the Wars of the Roses, the accession, political stability and prosperity, and a new age of building and rebuilding, it was not only the first two Tudor monarchs, Henry VII and Henry VIII, who were prolific builders, but also their subjects. The wealthy and the less wealthy rebuilt, remodeled, or extended their houses. Timber frame buildings were constructed or rebuilt on, in stone or brick, and there was a rise in both the quality and quantity of the new dwellings. The construction of more durable houses has led to a greater survival rate, and the large number of houses built has created a greater stock of examples from which to make gross generalizations. With the dawning of the 16th century, it becomes possible for the first time to write the history of the English interior with any accuracy. This great advance is tempered by the fact that subsequently there have been four to 500 years in which alterations can be and have been made. Important original elements such as floor and wall decorations were changed according to fashion. In an 18th and 19th century house, original walls, ceiling and floors can often be found. Whereas in the 16th and 17th century houses, they are far rarer. An additional complication is that some elements of the English interior scarcely change between the 17th and 19th centuries. It is often impossible for example, to date ironwork accurately, as practical designs, once they had evolved, endured for hundreds of years. How do we know what's original? Original elements from the period survive unaltered. This is due either to the exceptional quality or to some freak of building history. Original floors are sometimes revealed in old areas where new floorboards have been laid over old ones. Wall decoration can be found under later paneling, hangings, or paint layers. Thus, our view of the early domestic interior is colored by the patchy evidence which has been left to us. Certain overall developments during the period help us to unravel the appearance of the Tudor and Jacobean interior. Houses became markedly more comfortable than their medieval forebears. The central hearth, which has been the sole means of heating a room, in a medieval house had been replaced by the wall fireplace in almost all sizes of dwellings by the end of the period. In terms of construction and interior decoration, this change was quite radical. The abandonment of the central hearth removed the need for single-story houses with holes in the roof. Floors were introduced above the entrance level, and as ceilings were no longer obscured or damaged by smoke, they could now be decorated. Perhaps more importantly, the wall fireplace became a focus for decorative treatment. 
from the Tudor period right through the mid 20th century. A fireplace was a dominant element in any style of a room. Another development which was to have a major impact on the form of the interior was the increasing availability of glass. By the end of the period, glass was not only typical in larger houses, but had become quite common in smaller houses too. This affected the size, number, and design of windows. Moreover, bigger windows and those without shutters emitted more light and provided the incentive for carved or painted decoration inside the room. A more fundamental development was the increasing specialization of room functions within a house. In the Middle Ages, even the king would live in one big room, where he would eat, sleep, and conduct all affairs of state from the beginning of the 16th century. First the royal palaces, then courtier houses, and finally gentry houses developed a series of specialized rooms. Separate withdrawing rooms, dining rooms, parlors, bedrooms, closets, and even libraries and studies became commonplace. Each of these rooms had its own functional requirements and sometimes a code of decoration. Fabric hangings, for example, were considered inappropriate for rooms in which people ate as they tended to retain the smell of food. Plaster was thought to be more suitable in these areas. A further factor which affected the style of the interior was regional variation. Buildings are on the whole heavy and bulky items which were expensive to transport in an era before the creation of an efficient road or rail network. Thus the style and form of houses varied widely across the county. The three principal building materials were timber, brick, and stone. All timber buildings were found only in the areas without supplies of local stone or brick earth, which is clay, such as the West Midlands. Stone was almost universal in the Great Limestone Belt which stretched across England from Bath to Lincoln, and it was the standard building material throughout Scotland and Wales. The Thames Valley and East Anglia produced suitable brick earth. Different building materials were reflected in different architectural effects. Although some forms, especially window and door styles, could be reproduced in brick, stone, or timber, other elements of decoration were greatly affected by the material in which they were executed. Stone houses, for example, tended to have less decoration than timber ones as stone was more difficult and expensive to carve. Areas of good building stone, such as the Cotswolds or Northamptonshire, tended to have houses with more sober decoration than, for example, the highly decoration, decorated timber frame houses of Lancashire or Cheshire. Brick was increasingly used in areas without good stone. It varied as much as stone in quality and color. Much depended on the nature of the clay from which it was made and on the manufacture. Brick had its own limitations and advantages. It could be carved or, quote, rubbed, but more often the individual bricks were laid in patterns which took local forms. Another variable in terms of style was the location of the building, whether in a town or in the countryside. Rapid increase in population made for a period of urban expansion, so rapid that in 1580, a royal proclamation forbade 
new building within three miles of the gates of the City of London. The early Stuarts, James I and Charles I, placed further restrictions on building in London. This meant that houses built in the center of London, which was the capital, and other towns followed suit, were generally tall and narrow and had external decorations, such as carved timbers and parging, concentrated on their cramped facades. In the countryside, where land was less expensive, buildings could sprawl outward and facade decoration could afford to be looser. Through most of the period, the principal foreign influences from the Low Countries and Germany, but as the 16th century wore on, the influence of Italy began to creep and make itself felt all over the world. Rarely directly from the Italian peninsula, but more often through the median of Northern European countries. This process led to the gradual adoption of classical motifs and the classical orders, that is, the systems of ornament derived from ancient Greece and Rome, based on the Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, Tuscan, and composite styles of columns and entablatures. The desire of clients of these novelties was probably less strong than the enthusiasm of the craftsmen who sold the designs. From 1560, a stream of books and engravings began to come to England from Antwerp, widening the craftsmen's decorative vocabulary. When the Duke of Alva began to persecute Protestants in the Netherlands in the late 1560s, the flow of printed matter was augmented by the craftsmen and artists themselves, who fled to England to escape the dangers. One of the most important decorative imports from Antwerp in this period was strap work, a dominant form of interior decoration on ceilings, fireplaces, and woodwork. Many of the newest decorative fashions, including strap work, were the first adopted at court or in the court circles, but the speed at which these ideas diffused down to the social scale was quite remarkable. This inevitably led to the misunderstanding of decorative motifs by lesser craftsmen. The imagination of local craftsmen played a central part in the style of domestic buildings. Certain features were universal. The shapes of door and window heads, the overall configuration of a fireplace, the creeping influence of the Italian Renaissance. But the final product was infinitely varied, with the additional complication of regional variations in materials. The period from 1485 through 1625 seems to be one of considerable stylistic freedom. And this is quite apparent when the, the period is compared to the age of the Baroque, which saw the introduction of the rules of classical architecture, as well as the beginnings of mass production. The dimensions and position of a doorway were dictated by the practical requirements of access and construction. Whether of wood, stone, or brick, Tudor, Tudor door heads tended to be flat or four-centered, that is, in the form of a shallow arch, which rises to a central point. Four-centered heads sometimes had carved spandrels. The jams often had stopped, chamfered moldings, to protect the, the decorativeness of the frame. Hood molds or projecting cornices are common over front doors. And during the 16th century, porches became popular even at this early time. Internal doorways protected from the weather 
are often more elaborate than external doorways. Their decorative development is similar to that of the fireplace. Classical details such as pillars and cornices appeared around 1550, but the late medieval style remained dominant throughout this period. External doors were made from planks up to 26 inches wide and were usually oak. The planks were either fastened by horizontal battens on the reverse or by a second set of planks laid at right angles to the first, a double-boarded or cross-boarded door. The heads of nails were sometimes left exposed to give the decorative finish. Ordinary internal doors were usually battened. Grandeur doors were often lighter, compromising a framework with an infill of wooden panels. The door fittings were basic, except for the grandest houses available. So this is the beginning of our series, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Hope everyone enjoyed this, and uh, we're going to continue um, with another episode in just a minute. Thanks for listening.